Thank you, Ryan. Well, good morning, Crosswinds. Good to see you, and it's so exciting to be with you because Jordan and I connect during the week as we do with the other staff, and so I often hear all the exciting stories of things that God is doing here on the Spencer campus, and I share a little bit what's going on on the Spirit Lake campus, and it is just so neat to be able to be with you guys. Some of you, I have known you for a long time, from the launch day. Others of you, I'm just meeting today, but I am just thrilled to be here, and I just want to tell you right up front how much I I, I love you guys, and I'm looking forward to hanging out with you at the potluck and developing a little bit more of our relationship together. I don't know about you, but it seemed like Christmas really snuck up on us this year, didn't it? Uh, With Thanksgiving being late, all of a sudden Christmas is here and we're trying to figure out how to get the tree up and we have Christmas parties going on. It just happened too fast. And it seems like Christmas gets swallowed up in trees and decorations and meals and food. There's all this holiday stuff that goes with it. Thankfully, as Christians, we know that's not what Christmas is about, We know that Christmas is about us as Christians taking time to savor and enjoy the gift of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, who has come to save us for our sin. That's why He took on flesh. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Now, we know that, but the problem is Christmas is the the most hectic time of year, isn't it? We may know what we're supposed to be celebrating and remembering, but all that holiday treats and trees and gifts, it sort of overwhelms us. And we actually probably forget to take time to think about Jesus, to savor Jesus, and to enjoy Jesus in this Christmas season. Has that ever happened to you? So busy with the holiday, you actually forget what it's about? Yeah, I don't know. I know that in our family, sometimes we joke around and say we spend more time thinking about what's going to be for the Christmas meal than we actually do about Jesus because there is so much busyness that goes with the season. That's why we're going to try and remedy that a little bit today. As I'm sure Jordan told you, for the month of December, we are taking a break from our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're just turning to the book of Hebrews, and we're looking at snapshots of Jesus Christ. We're getting a chance to look at each week a little bit more about what the book of Hebrews tells us about Jesus and why it is so great that God sent His own Son in the flesh. Why we celebrate Christmas. So that's what we are going to be doing. Now, by the way, there is no more Christ-exalting book, at least in my opinion, in the Bible than the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is constantly expanding our understanding of how good Jesus is and what God has done for us through Him. If you have your outlines, go ahead and take those out. I'm just going to give you the fill in the blank right on the top. If you want to uh, summarize the entire book of Hebrews, this is it, in one very simple sentence. It's this. Jesus is greater. He's greater. Uh, He's a greater revelation of God than anything that has been done before. He provides greater salvation from God than anything that was offered before. Jesus provides us with a greater relationship with God than anyone has ever experienced before. Jesus is greater, and the book of Hebrews is telling us that He is greater in every single way. 
The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is uh, a greater than anything God has done for us in the past. And He's so great. There is nothing greater God could do for us in the future than what He has already done for us through Jesus Christ. We're going to unpack that theme this morning a little bit. We're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So I'd like you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I don't care if you use an electronic copy on your phone or if you use a paper copy. Either way is fine with me. Just get yourselves to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. While you are uh, turning there, I'm going to take just a few minutes to give you some background on the book of Hebrews that will be helpful for you as we go through this series. What is the background of Hebrews? The first thing I want to mention to you is this. Hebrews was likely written to Christians in Italy, that is, in Rome. I say likely because we don't know this for sure, but there are hints in the book that that is where it was originally intended for. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 24, the author of Hebrews says, those from Italy send their greetings. Like, why would you say that unless you were sending it to Italy? Like, well, you wouldn't send it to France and say, by the way, those from Italy send their greetings. It just wouldn't make sense. Another thing you should know, by the way, is that Hebrews was first recognized as Scripture in Rome, in Italy. So that seems to be the place it first landed, and then it was copied because it was so spiritually beneficial. Other things you need to know is that the, uh, the people that the book were written to, which is those most likely in Rome, were going through a great deal of suffering. They were actually, some of them were considering giving up their faith, walking away from Jesus because it was too costly. For instance, in the book we see Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14, it says this, let us hold fast to our confession. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't walk away from Jesus. You may wonder, what kind of suffering were these people going through? Well, if we have the chronology and the dating of the letter right, that's the time that Nero was in charge of Rome. And some of you may know about him. In the great fire of Rome, Nero blamed it on the Christians so he could uh, take his anger and wrath out against the Christians. He would tie them to metal or to wooden stakes in the ground, cover them with tar, and light them on fire when they were still alive. He would bring them into the arena where they would be slaughtered by professional gladiators. He would bring them into the arena and let them be torn apart by wild animals. That's the kind of suffering that these people were most likely facing. And the author of Hebrews says, I know you're tempted to give up. I know you're tempted to throw in the towel. But don't let Jesus go. He's greater, greater than anything God has done in the past for us. In fact, he's so great, there is nothing greater God could even do for us in the future other than what he has already done for us in Jesus. Don't let go of him. One other thing to tell you um, that's interesting is the author of Hebrews never tells us his name, and I believe he does that for a reason. Literally, uh, literarily, if you were to look at the book of Hebrews as it's written in the Greek, it is a literary masterpiece. The author of Hebrews is extremely brilliant. It's very well written and constructed and put together. But I think the author of Hebrews didn't sign his name to this book because when he wanted to make sure when people were done reading this book, they didn't remember him. 
they remembered Jesus. He didn't want people to come away going, wow, this guy is a great author. He wanted people to come away saying, wow, we have Jesus who is a great Savior. I think that's why he didn't sign his name into this book. I gave you a little uh, phrase in here that's in your outlines. I think it's very important. The more the spotlight we take, the less of the spotlight Jesus gets. Isn't that true about ministry and working in the church? The more of the spotlight we take, the less of the spotlight Jesus gets. And the author of Hebrews says, I just want you to remember one thing. Not me, just Jesus. Okay, hopefully you found Hebrews chapter 1. Let's go ahead and uh, stand out of reverence for God's Word. We're just going to read the first three verses together, which we'll unpack for you this morning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That ends the reading of the word of God. You can be seated. Now, the theme of the book is Jesus is greater. And the theme of these verses is that Jesus is greater. So let's begin to work our way through them, and I'll show you how that theme is is unpacked. The first thing we see is this, that Jesus is a greater word from God. We see it in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son. The writer of Hebrews is here intending to make a comparison. How God spoke by the prophets in the past, and He's now speaking by His Son in the present. Let's think this through. The prophets, how did they speak God's Word? This is the Old Testament that we have. What we know is that it says in the Bible that God put His thoughts into the prophets' minds. And God actually controlled the prophet's words so that they spoke the word of God. Or they literally wrote the word of God. So the prophet said exactly without error what God wanted to say. They were the prophet, they were God's mouthpiece. And we see this is actually what the scriptures teach us is how this took place in 2 Peter chapter 1. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, uh, when the prophets wrote the Word of God that we have in our Old Testament, it was never their idea. Isaiah didn't just uh, find himself bored one afternoon and say, you know what, I think I'm going to write some of the Bible before dinner because I don't know what else to do with my time. That's not the way it worked. God put his thoughts into the prophets' minds and then controlled them to speak or to say exactly his words to the people. 
Now, this is something that we have never experienced. All of our thoughts are self-generated. All of our speaking is self-generated and self-evaluated, but not so for the prophets. They knew that they were speaking God's words. To prove this to you, you just simply look at your Old Testament. Over 3,600 times you find the phrase, Thus saith the Lord, or something very similar to it. The prophets are saying, hey, these are God's words that I have been given to speak, not my words that I have been given to speak. In fact, you can see this right away if you look in the book of Jeremiah as how false prophets are described. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hope. They're speaking visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. It's a characteristic of a false prophet. It's their words. The true prophets, it's always God's words. Now for me, I find this amazing. That we literally have God's words spoken to us without error in the Old Testament. Isn't that mind-bending? Anybody else find that true? Yes. But here is what's even more amazing. Now we have God's own Son. God eliminated the middleman. He took on flesh in the womb of Mary. He was born in Bethlehem. And so when Jesus speaks, it is God speaking. When we see Jesus, we see God. When Jesus acts, we are literally watching God act. God has eliminated the middleman. He has come to us personally, Himself, in the flesh. This is what it says in John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, that is the Old Testament, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says also in John 14, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? These words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. To see Jesus speak or to hear Jesus speak, is to hear God speak. To see Jesus act is to hear God act. It's God in the flesh, which is so much greater than just His words. Let me illustrate it to you. Uh, some years ago, I used to watch TV a little more frequently, and one of the things I really enjoyed watching was the program Extreme Home Makeover. Does anybody remember that program? Oh, I love Extreme Homemaker. It was my favorite. There was one episode where there was a uh, husband. He was serving in Iraq, and they were going to make over his family's house. So his wife and his children were there, and they were sent on vacation, and he was in Iraq, and so he hasn't been in the show at all. And you know how they do the big reveal where they have the panels that come in front of the house, and they pull up in the car, and Ty, who is the, the host, comes over, and he gets ready to do the reveal? Well, at this point, Ty comes over, and the wife is all excited about this big reveal, 
And he says, I know that your husband can't be here with you because he's serving in Iraq, but we've arranged to get him on the phone. And here he is, and he hands her a phone, and she's thrilled, and she's talking to him, and they're conversing back and forth. They do the reveal, and she's crying, and she's going through the house, and she's describing to him the colors, and she's describing to him the way it is, and she's thrilled. And she kept saying this one phrase in the reveal, I just wish you were here. I just wish you were here. Hopefully this doesn't click anymore. There you go. And then as the reveal came to an end, they went into the backyard and um, he said to his wife on the phone, Honey, I, I really have to go. I have to get back to work. And she sort of dejectedly said, Okay, I'll let you go. And she hung up the phone and you can see the sadness on her face. She didn't have her husband. I believe she had his words for a brief while. But you see, the producers hadn't just arranged to get him on the phone. The producers had actually flown him back from Iraq. He was in the backyard hiding behind a bush. And as soon as he hung up the phone, he leapt out from behind the book, bush and wrapped his arms around her. And she collapsed into his arms and the tears just began to flow. It was good to have his words. But what she really wanted was him. Folks, the same is true for us. It was good to have God's words in the Old Testament. Very good to have His words. But now we have God Himself in the flesh. How much greater can that get? Jesus is greater. Greater than anything God has done in the past. And He couldn't even do anything greater for us in the future. How much greater of a revelation to God for us could we ask for other than God becoming flesh in the womb of Mary and being born? And He came to not just be the greatest revelation of God to us, but He came to save us by dying in our place for our sins. Nothing we can do other than just receive the gift He's given to us. And we're adopted into God's very family and our identity, it says in Ephesians, is that we are now the most blessed beings in the entire universe. We could call Jesus our elder brother. It can't get any greater, can it? Now, the writer of Hebrews, he continues to unpack some of these things. He uses six uh, clauses or phrases here to describe just how great it is to have Jesus. The first one we see is this. Jesus is the heir of all things, whom he appointed the heir of all things. An heir is someone who is designated to receive assets at some time and point in the future. Usually uh, an inheritance goes and is passed on and the heir receives those assets at the death of someone. But it doesn't necessarily need to be at someone's death. It could be at a specific appointed time in the future. And what we find here is that Jesus is the one who is designated by God as the heir of all things, and he will receive all those things and be over all those things at a point in time in the future. We may not see that actively taking place now, but we will see that actively taking place later. Paul unpacks this a little bit in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him... All things were created, this is speaking of Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and notice this, and for him. Paul says all things in the physical world were created by Jesus, and all things in the invisible spiritual world that we do not see right now were also created by Jesus. And he also teases out this uh, spiritual world for us. He says whether they are thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. Now for most of us, those names just sort of roll off the tongue and carry little meaning. But if you were to go to... Jewish literature in the time of Jesus, you would realize that the Jews believed there were different ranks and authorities of angelic beings in the unseen spiritual world. No different than we have different ranks and powers of authorities of human beings in this world. We have some people who are garbage men and other people who are presidents. The president can you know, start a nuclear war. He has plenty of authority. The garbage man can't start a nuclear war. doesn't have that kind of authority. And the same thing is true in the angelic realm. Thrones are the greatest powers and authorities of angelic beings, and it works its own way on down to authorities being the lowest uh, spiritual authority of angelic being. But Paul says it doesn't matter how low you go in the angelic world or how high you go in the angelic world. Jesus is the creator of the entire angelic world, and he is the one who is the heir and authority over all of that. Look how Paul says something similar about this, about uh, Jesus being the heir of all things in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, speaking about Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we have not seen that yet, but Jesus is the heir of all things. We will see that, because that's the position that God has given, God the Father has given the Son. And speaking about the human or the earthly world, what do we find about Jesus and his relationship to that? Prophetically, we see this spoken in Psalm chapter 2, which is about Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What we find is that Jesus, the one who is, took on flesh, who was conceived, as you were, in flesh in Mary's womb, who was born in Bethlehem, even though he was looking so weak and so helpless, and cooing in his mother's arms, in reality, is the heir of all things that were ever created. Greater can we get than to have Jesus as our Savior. The Bible also tells us that Jesus is the creator of the universe, through whom also he made the world. Now, when it came to the creation of the world, just so you know, it was actually a team effort. God the Father planned creation. The Scriptures tell us that God the Son, that is Jesus, carried out the making of all things. And the Holy Spirit was involved as well. We can read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that He was hovering over the waters even as things were being created. Now, we have just seen in Hebrews that Jesus is the creator of all things. 
And in the previous point, we saw in Colossians that Jesus is also the creator of all things. We can see that same thing reinforced in John chapter 1, where it says this in verse thing, verse 3, speaking about Jesus. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In our last point, we teased out a little bit of the vast spiritual universe that Jesus is over all that. Let's take a few moments to tease out the physical universe that Jesus is the creator of. Stephen Hawking wrote a book called A Brief History of Time, where he tried to describe the size of our universe and our galaxy. I'm going to read this to you. Not quite, no, no picture yet, Ryan. We'll be there in a moment. It's an average-sized spiral galaxy, this is where we live, that looks like a swirl in a pastry roll. But it is 100,000 light years in diameter. That's, we are, galaxy is 600 trillion miles across. Our galaxy is only one, though, of some 100,000 million other galaxies that can be seen with modern telescopes. Each of those galaxies contains some 100,000 million stars, with the average distance between each galaxy being 3 million light years. And go ahead and put that one back up there, Ryan. That's the you are here. That's our galaxy. We're that little tiny, tiny blip that is on that screen. That's our planet. And Jesus is the one who created all of this. And the universe is much larger than you can ever imagine it. Now here's what blows me away. The Bible tells us that when Satan rebelled, it insinuates that about one-third of the angelic beings also joined in that rebellion. And so you have a huge angelic um, world that has fallen. You have a huge physical universe that's in existence. And in all of this vast universe and all of the things that are going on in the universe, God took special interest for you and for me right here. Took such special interest that he set about to redeem us from the sin that we could not redeem ourselves. He set out to do that by humbling himself. The one who created all these things humbled himself to fuse himself with human flesh, to limit the free exercise of all of his divine might and power so he could completely identify with us in human life, with all of our suffering with all of our pain, and then to go to the cross to die the most barbaric death known to humanity, and also at the same time of enduring all that physical pain as a human being, have his father turn his back on him as he became sin for us. Also, he could save us, then adopt us, so that we are now the most blessed beings in the entire world vast universe. Nothing else is more blessed than we are through Jesus. Is Jesus getting greater? Greater than anything God has done in the past, 
You could not even get anything greater that God would do in the future other than what He has done for us through Jesus. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we celebrate Christ, not trees and tinsels and toys. It's about Jesus. The other thing we see is Jesus sustains everything. Sustains everything by His power. It says in the, the text, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now, sustaining the universe, by the way, is different than creating the universe. Creating the universe is the easy part. Sustaining the universe is the hard part. And if you have children can concur, creating them was the easy part, right? It's sustaining them for the next 18 plus years that is actually the hard work that's involved. And this is what we find. Now, in the 17th and 18th century, there was a belief that was popular called deism. And maybe some of you have heard about that. They believed that God created the universe and after he wound it up like a watch, he walked away and he's no longer involved in the universe. That's why the deist would say, you can pray, but God's not listening, even though God created things. I have to tell you that that is not biblically possible as an explanation. Because we just saw right here that not only did Jesus create the entire universe, but Jesus is the one who is currently actively involved sustaining the entire universe. And He is involved listening to our prayers. This is one of the things that makes me laugh when we see in modern politics where people will say, you know, the, uh, if we don't act now, the planet is going to like fold in 12 years. Remember that? As if we're the ones sustaining the planet. We're not sustaining the planet. If we were sustaining the planet, we would have screwed it up a long time ago. Jesus is the one who is sustaining the planet. Jesus is the one who is sustaining the entire universe. And here's what's amazing. You may not realize it, but Jesus is the one who is actively sustaining your life today and my life today. Jesus is the one who gives you each day your daily bread. How could I prove that? Let's go to the Old Testament. Remember the Israelites when they were taken out of Egypt? If you go to the book of Jude, it says it was Jesus who actually led the Israelites out of Egypt. And Jesus was the one in the Old Testament who was providing for them and sustaining them. And what happened when they went into the desert? When all of a sudden they realized there was no McDonald's? They had no food. And so God provided manna, manna each morning that was found on the, on the ground. That's actually Jesus was providing the manna. Jesus was providing the daily bread for His people in the wilderness supernaturally. And here's what's interesting. Remember when they tried to store up the manna? What happened to it? It, it rotted, filled with maggots and worms, and they couldn't do that. He said, don't worry about the future. Jesus will provide for you each day in the future. He's providing daily bread. But here's what's interesting. Remember what happened on the day before the Sabbath with that manna? God provided double manna. And if they tried to store that one up, did it last? Oh, yes. The manna that they, tried to, they needed to store up for the Sabbath day so they didn't have to go out and gather it, that manna did last an extra day. So God provided for His people's daily bread, just what they needed every day, but He also provided them with enough bread on the last day so they could have a rest on the next day. 
Jesus was the one doing that. He was sustaining the universe. He was sustaining their lives. Jesus, the one who was born in a manger, who looked so weak, looked so helpless, who wore a diaper, was at that moment sustaining the entire universe, sustaining the planet, and sustaining the daily bread of every single person. How big is Jesus? Can't get any bigger than Jesus. He took on flesh to save you and me. Can't get any greater than what God has done for us through Jesus. Now, the next thing we see is this. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. This is the heart of what the uh, author of Hebrews is driving at in these first opening verses. And so he uses two parallel clauses to essentially say the same thing. They didn't have bold. (laughs) They didn't have underlines. So if they wanted to make a point and drive it home, they repeated it and said it twice in a slightly different way. And that's what we have here. The first thing we see is this, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. For all you science nerds, you're going to like this, because the writer of Hebrews is using science to drive home a point on the true identity of Jesus. He is making a contrast between radiated light and reflected light. See, radiated light contains the essence of what, it, of, uh, what is radiating that light from. Let me ex- describe it this way. The sun, for instance. The sun is thousands of miles away. It's burning right now at approximately 15,000 degrees. But the radiance of the light from that fire travels through space. It lands on our ground. It warms our planet It grows our corn, it grows our soybeans, and it warms us. In fact, if we go outside too long in the summer, we end up with this thing called sunburn because the light of the sun contains some of the essence of the fire from the sun and we get burned from the sun because it's radiated light. It contains the essence of of what, is, what it's radiating from. Now contrast that with reflected light. For an example of what that may look like, uh, think about the moon. The moon, it lights up the night sky, but it is not radiating light. It is just reflected, reflecting light. Moonlight does not contain essence of moon in it. Nobody comes away after a night and going, hey, I just ended up with a moon burn because I got too much essence of moon. It just doesn't happen. Now, look at this with Jesus. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. Jesus radiates the glory of God because He contains in Himself the very glory of God. That is why He radiates God's glory. In other words, Jesus is God. That's the only way you can radiate God's glory. Now, how much glory does Jesus have? A little bit or a lot? 
the Bible tells us that one day our current creation will be redone. It'll be the new creation. There'll be the new heavens and the new earth that is this earth and heavens remanufactured, heaven and earth combined. There'll be a capital city called the New Jerusalem. But in that day, the light in the new creation will not come from the S-U-N that is in the sky burning at 15,000 degrees. The light will come from the S-O-N. It'll come from Jesus. He's going to be, he's bright enough to light the entire planet. That's how much glory he radiates. Look what it says in Revelation 21, 23. And the city, speaking of the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And where is this glory coming from? Its lamp is the Lamb. That's Jesus. In your mind, go back a few weeks in our study of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus went up Mount Hermon where he was transfigured with Peter, James, and John. And what did they say he became like? His face shone bright as the sun, and his clothing flashed white with the brightness of lightning. You see, when he was transfigured on Mount Hermon, he let his glory radiate through. The rest of the time, he held his glory back. He has this glory because he is God. Now, the complementary phrase that goes with it was this. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Historically, those Greek terms were used originally of taking a seal and pressing it into wax. I don't know if you ever tried that. You know, you seal a letter with some wax and you put a seal into it. It's amazing how that works because the wax takes on an identical imprint of the stamp that is pressed into it. It's perfect the way it works. So what you have is two distinctly different things, but they're two completely identical things, the stamp and the seal. They're an exact imprint of one another. The writer of Hebrews is saying this is Jesus' identity. He radiates the glory of God because he is God, yet he is distinctly different from God the Father but he is identical in essence and nature to God the Father. That is who took on flesh. Someone who is not lesser than God, but the second person of God who is identical to God, who took on flesh, humbled himself to ultimately take on our sin, die on a cross, the most barbaric death known to man because God loves you and He loves me to save us completely. And all we can do is simply receive it as a gift of grace and then become the most blessed beings in the universe. How much greater can we get than what God has done for us through Jesus? The text continues. Jesus also purifies us from sin. Not only did Jesus take on flesh, but Jesus has purified us from our sins. The tense of the verb here tells us that this is something that was actually completed in the past, but it has ramifications for us in the present. 
In other words, what Jesus did in the past, it completely pays for our sin. The sin that we have not even committed yet is still completely atoned for by Jesus' death because it is such a huge thing that God has done for us. This is why Jesus was on the cross. And the final words out of his mouth as he took his last breath was this, It is finished. Or in Greek, it's the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. All of our sin for all time, our past, our present, and our future has been stamped by Jesus, paid in full. That is how good God has been to us. But here is where this gets interesting. Through Jesus, we have not been just judicially forgiven before God, but we are also experientially um, made new when it comes to our sin. We may know that God has forgiven our sins before God, but the problem we often have is the experience of our guilt and shame because of what we've done. Anybody been there? You look in the mirror, disgusted with yourself. Jesus, you may forgive me, but I just can't stand what I've done. I can't stand what I've become. And it's not just once, but I've done it again. Jesus, I know you forgive, but I'm just disgusted by what I've become. Anybody feel that way on occasions? Well, here's where it gets interesting. Let me put it to you this way. We are marred with what I call the stain of sin. You try to get the stain out, and you can't get the stain out. Anybody ever have a stain in their carpet they can't get out? And everybody, every stain has a story? Yeah. And it reminds us of how we screwed up with the grape juice. We had a stain that told a story in our house. It was actually not on the carpet. It was in the chair. It was the time was that we had this old gold chair that had been given to us. And the kids were little. That meant there was crumbs everywhere. And it was an old house, which meant the mice loved it. And apparently, there was crumbs that were in the chair, and a mouse had gone under the cushion of the chair to eat those crumbs. And what had happened was somebody in the house, probably a very large person, don't know who that would be, uh, sat in the chair. And you know what happens when you sit on a mouse under a cushion? Yeah, it, it, we crushed it. The thing is, we just didn't know it happened for weeks. It was just, where is this smell coming from in the house? We are looking everywhere. We are trying to find what the smell comes from. And then just per chance, one day the cushion was pulled up and we discovered where it came from. And we tried to get that stain out. You don't get the stain of a decomposed rodent out from the cushion. You know, that stain was permanent. In fact, we had to throw away that chair. But that's just the same way we feel, isn't it? The stain of our sin mars us. It mars our soul. We look in the mirror. I wish I could take back what I said. I wish I could take back what I did. I have to live with these consequences. Jesus. He provides such a great forgiveness of sin that He takes away the stain of your sin. 
You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it could not take away the stain of sin. It just couldn't do that. People were left with their guilt. They were left with their shame. But what do we find Jesus does for us in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a completely new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Jesus doesn't just take out the stain of the sin that you have done, but he makes us into somebody that is completely and totally new. Praise God. That is what we so desperately need. What else could we ask for from Jesus? Not just to become what we were, but to become better than we ever could be because he took away our sin. Now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. The last thing it says here. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God, which is the highest place in the universe. And what is Jesus doing there? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How much better could it get? We have the second person of the Godhead who has taken on flesh, who completely understands you and me, right now sitting at the highest place in the universe, the right hand of God the Father, who is pleading our case, who is pleading our prayers right to God the Father. Who else would you rather have there? Who could be better than having God the Son there, caring about you and me, pleading our case to God? With Jesus, there is nothing greater. Jesus is greater than everything God has done in the past for us. In fact, there is nothing that greater than God can do for us than what He has already done for us through Jesus. He is the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His very nature, <laughs> The one who has completely purified us of our sins and made us into completely new creations who is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father pleading for you and me. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. Not trees, tinsels, and toys. There can be nothing greater than Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us through your Son. We want to confess that so often we have made the busyness of the Christmas season the focus of the Christmas season. Whether it's families getting together and meals and presents and trees, those are all good things. But what you have given us, Jesus, through being born in the flesh to take away our sin is really the greater thing. I ask that you would help us this season to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, because there is nothing greater that we could have and there's nothing more important than we can do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.